This is a podcast from the Refugee Study Centre. To learn more about our work, please visit www.rsc.ox.ac.uk. probably needs no introduction, which is what people always say before they give a long introduction. <laughs> <laughs> um, but as you know, she's a lawyer and she's the co-author with Professor Guy Goodwin-Gill of the um, Refugee and International Law, as well as a number of the key, really seminal works on climate change, forced migration and international law. Um, Matt's joke always is, is that Jane is the world's expert on climate refugees, a category that she has explained us does not exist. Um, <laughs> But she's really deeply involved in climate change issues. And I think one of the things about her talk today, which is looking at historical cross-border relocations in the Pacific, um, is that she's taking not only her legal expertise, but also her expertise as a historian, and looking at what the lessons can be drawn for contemporary relocations in the context of climate change. Um, And this is an issue that she's addressed not only as a scholar, um, but also as somebody who works in a lot of different international fora, including in relation to the Nansen Initiative, and looks at these issues really um, in a very practical way, as well as in a scholarly way. Uh, So it's a great pleasure to be here and Catherine thank you so much for your very warm welcome and introduction and thanks to all of you for coming along as well, Uh, it's greatly appreciated. So what I'm going to speak about today as Catherine mentioned is historical cross-border relocations focusing on the Pacific mainly because uh, as far as we we know or I know and no one's corrected me on this yet, uh, there have only been three cross-border community relocations um, in the world. But of course it does depend on how you want to conceptualise that. And in another paper I go on to say, well actually you could look at the whole of settler colonialism as a relocation if you wanted to. But, But for today's purposes I'm looking at situations where community groups have been picked up from one country and moved en masse to another. And I want to reflect on this um, historical question from the perspective of present-day deliberations around the impacts of climate change and natural disasters on human mobility. As Catherine mentioned, um, one of the the initiatives that I work with is the Nansen Initiative on Disaster-Induced Cross-Border Displacement, which is an intergovernmental process led by Norway and Switzerland that really recognised that there was a, a protection gap for people... Uh, displaced or wanting to move uh, because of the impacts of climate change and disasters and looking at from the ground level up where are those gaps what interventions are needed and and normatively what might need to be done as well when this debate started in, in a sense in this context back in around 2007 2008 We were thinking of planned relocations as being something that might be necessary if you had small island states 
threatened over the longer term by sea level rise um, and whether it would be necessary to move those populations elsewhere. And because there's no high land in countries like Kiribati and Tuvalu, it was thought that perhaps those populations would be uh, moved to, you know, maybe Australia or New Zealand or another, another country in any event. Our thinking has moved on a lot since then, such that the Nansen Initiative, when it talks about planned relocations now in the context of disasters and climate change, describes three ways in which they might be used. And predominantly, they are about internal movements, not cross-border movements. Firstly, planned relocation can be a preventative measure within a country of origin to reduce the risk of future displacement by moving people out of areas that are particularly at risk of sudden onset disasters or environmental degradation due to slower onset processes. And secondly, planned relocation can be a durable solution, again, within a country, if people have been displaced internally by a disaster or in the context of a disaster, or if they've been displaced across an international border and can now come home, but it's not safe for them to go back to their original place of residence. And then the third exceptional category is this cross-border relocation in the extreme event that natural hazards or environmental degradation render large parts of, or in fact perhaps an entire country, unfit for human habitation. The reason why I decided in my research I was going to look at these three historical examples was because in, in these early discussions there were very unsophisticated and rather... Um, fantastical sort of ideas that, well, it doesn't matter, Tuvalu only has 10,000 people, how hard can it be to move them somewhere else? And I thought, I think it might be a bit harder than, than you imagine, notwithstanding the fact that, that most people you speak to say, I don't actually ever want to leave my home unless I really have to. And that's why I thought, why don't I focus on the three instances we know about where groups have been moved across a border to figure out how those experiences might be able to inform contemporary debates. And again, even though I'm looking at cross-border movement, many of the lessons can be applied to um, internal movements as well. What the experiences from the Pacific show is that there are deep intergenerational psychological consequences of planned relocation. And I think that explains why it's considered to be an option of last resort among communities that you speak to. It's essential that planned relocations, if they are to occur in the future, involve affected communities in participation, in consultation and, and um, seeking consent, that there's sufficient lead time to enable these careful participatory planning processes to occur, that um, provision is made for land acquisition. Um, there are complex systems of land tenure in the Pacific that make this particularly challenging. And also we need to ensure that there is sustained and sufficient financing so as to be able to resettle people in a way that improves rather than deteriorates their living standards. The cases that I'm going to talk about today involve, in fact, those countries of Kiribati and Tuvalu that, that once again are you know, facing the, this sort of future prospect of, um, of uninhabitability because of climate change impacts, not least um, the loss of fresh water due to um, salination of the, of, of the soil and the, the um, bores where water comes from, but also prolonged drought. In 1945, 
from a little tiny remote island known as Ocean Island, which is now part of Kiribati. A group of people called the Barnabans were moved to a separate island which is in Fiji called Rambi Island, and that's the group I'm going to talk about most. So the Barnabans from Ocean Island in Kiribati who moved to Rambi Island in Fiji in December 1945. The second group that I'm going to speak about a little bit um, was a group of people known as the Vaitupuans from Tuvalu, and they moved quite by chance to a neighbouring island in Fiji um, called Kioa Island and that their first movement started in 1947. And then there were a couple of, of cases uh, of people who moved to the Solomon Islands but I'm not going to address those today. So back in December 1945, the Barnabans moved from Ocean Island to Fiji essentially to make way for the British Phosphate Commission, which was a joint British, Australian and New Zealand enterprise, to mine as much of their island as possible for phosphate. And then two years later, in October 1947, this group from Tuvalu bought an island in Fiji and settled on it, um, just kilometres away from, from where the Barnabans went. A couple of years ago, I went to these two new island, these two new home islands in Fiji, and spoke to people there. And while virtually everybody I talked to acknowledged the material benefits of their new homes in Fiji, with abundant food and water, greater educational and economic opportunities, and so on, it didn't mean that they thought the relocation had been a great success. And ultimately, what was different about the two cases and which has undoubtedly had a huge impact on the subsequent development, in fact, of those two communities, was the degree of choice that the groups could exercise when they relocated. The Barnabans say they had no choice. The, the people from Tuvalu say, we made the decision ourselves. And when I spoke to people and descendants, and as well as some of the elders who were part of the original move, it was really fascinating to see how those original, um, or, or perhaps not even original, the, these constructed stories of the move continued to inform how people felt about it today. I should note that Pacific history is a story of mobility. For centuries, islanders have moved in response to changing environmental, political and social conditions. But of course, historically, we didn't have this same idea of, of, of boundaries and borders, so that movement was much more fluid. And even today, um, there is an enormous mobility among Pacific groups, with people travelling to urban centres for work or education, or journeying around the world for nine months of the year as seafarers on international liners. During the colonial period, um, the government of the Gilbert and Ellis Islands colony, which is basically Tuvalu and Kiribati today, um, that colonial government back in the, the 19th century and early 20th century, was well aware of the resource scarcity on the islands. And in fact, back in the 1920s and 30s, um, I, I came across files in the archives where they, you know, entitled resettlement of, of populations because what they were looking to do was to better distribute the population around these islands so as to relieve pressure on, uh, on natural resources and the environment. 
So in that sense, mobility was also something that the colonial authorities uh, encouraged in a way. But the movements to Rambi and Kioa in Fiji are rare cases where a whole community was actually picked up and taken to an empty island in another country to establish a home that they could administer through their own local council. And each of them provides a really interesting counterpoint. So if I begin with the Barnabans, what happened was in 1900, uh, an English prospector discovered that this tiny little island um, in the middle of the Pacific was very, very rich with A-grade phosphate. So as soon as that was found, the British government annexed the island into this Gilbert and Ellis Islands colony. They hadn't cared less about this little rock until that time. And from 1912 onwards, when you know, the island by that point had been mined for over a decade, the, the, the mining company that was there was agitating to get rid of the local population. Um, they said we could mine the island far more extensively and efficiently if only these people weren't in the way. What was fascinating was in the British archives, you see the um, colonial authorities back in London saying, well, actually, they have a right to be there. You can't just kick them out of their home. Um, but at the same time, I also came across letters where um, there was much more forceful language being used by the, the resident commissioner in the Pacific Islands, essentially saying, you've offended our great gods uh, by saying you don't want to go. Uh, it's a matter of life and death, basically. Um, if you want to continue living, you'll agree to move off your island. So, you know, the, the degree of, um, of pressure being put on them seems to have um, been quite extreme at times. So the island was mined until 1979, and by that point, 21 million tonnes of phosphate had been removed, uh, 13, of which, uh, 13 million tonnes of which were scattered across farms in Australia. Um, the Barnabin community themselves received a 15% share of, of the royalties, and this is a long-standing uh, point of antagonism where they say, you know, this was our home, and what have we got to show for that? As I mentioned, almost all of the official records in these early years acknowledge the Barnabans' right to remain in their traditional homeland and also acknowledge their right to benefit from the proceeds of any resources that were taken. But in the communication that was to secure their fate, the colonial administration noted that while it would be repugnant to evict a native tribe, simply to, and I quote, afford wider opportunity of gain to a rich commercial corporation. In this case, the greater good of the British Empire was at stake. And so, wrote, wrote Britain's High Commissioner for the Western Pacific, the interests of empire seem to demand that the process of development on Ocean Island should be allowed to continue until the whole island is worked out. Well, mind. There were negotiations between the colonial authorities and the Barnabans for over 40 years about whether or not they would move. And it was only after, in the Second World War, when the Japanese occupied Ocean Island and basically um, dispersed the Barnabans across the colony that the British authorities said, Now's the time. now the time is ripe to move them. So at the end of the war, the British authorities told the Barnabans that their, that their home island had been rendered uninhabitable by the Japanese and they could move to another island in Fiji. According, and I should note that 
three years earlier, um, back in 1942, um, the Barnabans had agreed and, in fact, in fact, had started agitating for the purchase of another island and so that's when this island in Fiji had been bought. It was an old coconut plantation island and it was kind of there for the future but they never imagined that the future would be three years hence. According to the community's founding myth, the Barnaban elders were shown photos of a town with two-storey houses and they were told, this is Rambi, the island that you're going to. But it wasn't. It, they were actually photos of the former capital of Fiji, which was a very well-established town. So believing that they were moving to this you know, paradise and a much better equipped town, they agreed to go. This is how the story proceeds. When the bulk of the group moved in December 45, it was the middle of hurricane season and some of the Barnabans say we were clearly never meant to survive the voyage. Um, on arrival, they found no town, um, a couple of Solomon Islanders who had stayed behind to continue on the coconut plantations and uh, a lot of cows and they'd never seen cattle before and were absolutely terrified uh, when they arrived and had to basically put up canvas tents that they stayed in for the first few months with cattle walking around. Um, they, they had two months of rations, they had these tents by the beach and they had very little knowledge of how to plant the island and become self-sufficient. Now the British records tell the story a bit differently. They don't, there's no record that I've come across of any photos, but they do show that a decision was made to move the Barnabans to Rambi, whether they were agreeable or not, because there was no place in the Gilbert and Ellis Islands colony where they could be provided for. Um, but despite a lot of discussion in the documents about no Barnaban will be forced to go against their will, um, it, was, it seems to be quite clear that there was a lot of pressure put on people to, to make them go. And so in the end it was said everyone did agree to go. The move was meant to just be for a two-year trial period initially, and if the Barnabans then wanted to go back to Ocean Island, they would be, their transport would be paid for by the colonial authorities. The Secretary of the Western Pacific High Commission thought it highly doubtful that they'd choose to stay, um, and they, he said their willingness to do so will depend upon their treatment in Fiji and whether they get to like the place sufficiently while they, or during their, and I quote, enforced sojourn in the island. And this, this kind of point of we, we actually want them to stay was largely behind a decision to give them quite considerable local autonomy to manage their own affairs on Rambi Island. So they were granted um, a, a very, um, they, they basically were given their own um, local council. They were able to come up with a lot of their own regulations. And although they came formally under the uh, colony of Fiji and today under the government of Fiji, they were able to exercise a very high degree of self-governance. Just going back, as I mentioned, this island had been bought in, 19, um, in the 1940s. And in, in fact, the British documents say it was the Barnabans who at this point started agitating for a new home. In fact, they say as early as 1920, some of the Barnabans said, could you please buy us another island because we're worried that we are becoming too Europeanised here because of all the phosphate miners. And they said, if we're to preserve our racial identity and culture, we're going to have to to continue it somewhere else. 
So that for this reason, they said, we want a new home where we can resume native cultivation, map making and fishing. And that's when all these negotiations took place and they found Ramby Island. Now, this... This sort of side of the story of um, requesting a new home doesn't get reflected at all in the in the Barnabin telling of the story, um, and in some sense it's become totally irrelevant because this myth of and I shouldn't say myth is in it's a lie it's it's not but this kind of story of of the relocation built on a narrative of deceit and injustice has potency to this day. Um, dances have been built up around it, songs uh, on the, the sort of national national day um, that commemorates the, the relocation. There is this very strong story that gets passed down to the, the younger generations about loss of homeland, deprivation of resources and destruction of identity. What's fascinating is that Many of the people in Fiji, although they've never been back to, or never been to Ocean Island, um, never even been to Kiribati, many of them have a, a visceral and spiritual connection to their original island. Um, and loss of home is not just about the loss of place and personality, but about a loss, a sense of a loss of culture and identity itself. At its heart, is it's a story about self-determination or a sense that self-determination has been lost. Um, home is about land, it's about rights, it's about sovereignty and power, including the power to shape your own destiny. So I was at first quite taken aback when an old lady in her 90s who'd been part of that original move in 1945 said to me, I wouldn't mind if um, Ocean Island continued to be mined for phosphate today. And I said, oh, really? She said, oh, I don't mind if that happens provided that we could control it and we could profit from it. And so I think that visceral connection to land at one level is certainly a spiritual one, but it's linked also to the sense of loss of control. And, and this, is, this is a large part of the story. In fact, in 1948, and then again as the process of decolonisation took hold in the Pacific during the 60s and 70s, the Barnabans called for their own independence as a state, uh, albeit without success. Mostly they wanted independence for Ocean Island, but in the lead-up to Fiji's independence, they also said we'd actually quite like to have independence over Rambi as well, which didn't go, do didn't go down so well with, with Fiji. What it seems, though, is that for, there was a, a team that went to examine, from Britain that went to examine Rambi's economic potential, and they said... We think that the Barnabans' attitude of independence is less about wanting sovereign independence as a free you know, nation-state, but rather it's about a desire to retain their own socio-political identity. In 1968, the Barnabans went so far as to present a submission to the British government saying that they should be given independence pursuant to the UN Declaration on the Granting of Independence to Colonial Countries and People. And in 68 and 74, they petitioned the UN Committee of 24 on decolonisation to that end. They argued that they'd maintained a separate identity and culture against all the odds, and this could only be preserved and strengthened in the future if they were to regain their homeland. They said, and I quote, they felt like an alien community in Fiji, and they would have greater security if Ocean Island were independent. 
Different models for independence were proposed, um, from trusteeship through to complete sovereign independence. But the one that got the most traction and that ultimately I think they thought would be the most workable was for Ocean Island to become a state in free association with Fiji or perhaps even with Kiribati. The British government, though, said, and of course we have to remember that this is still at the time that Ocean Island was part of a, a British colony, and the Gilbert Islands, which was to become Kiribati, certainly didn't want to lose Ocean Island. Part of this, again, was around uh, the phosphate resources. That colony was getting 85% of the royalties, and Britain realised that if they continued to get that, that would sustain them into the future. Um, and it didn't seem right that a, a, a tiny group of, you know, a few thousand people in Fiji should have control over these resources. So the British government said that there was nothing to justify a departure from its long-established and widely accepted policy that the principle of territorial integrity and the wishes of the people as a whole within the existing boundaries of a territory should be the main guide to decolonisation. So in other words, Ocean Island was not going to get any kind of independence. However, the authority said that we do believe that the Barnabans' special interests and concerns should be safeguarded to the fullest extent possible within the sovereignty of what was to become Kiribati. And so they welcomed an offer to provide the Barnabans with a very privileged constitutional status in Kiribati. And in fact, what happened is something that, to my knowledge, is unique. Today, the Barnabans, who live in Fiji, um, are mostly Fiji citizens. And yet, under the constitution of Kiribati, their land rights and interests on Ocean Island are secured. They have a right to enter and reside in Kiribati. They also have the right to take up citizenship of Kiribati and, um, and, and perhaps um, of particular interest is the fact they have two dedicated MPs in the parliament of Kiribati. Now, I don't know of another... You may, but I don't know of another example quite like that. Um, but notwithstanding all these legal safeguards and uh, you know, con constitutional safeguards, they still are not enough to overcome the sense among the Barnabin community that they are a people in exile. And that language of exile has been used quite, quite a lot in, their, um, in discussions. Now, the story of Kioa, I'm not going to go into it in the same, uh, same amount of detail, but this story of Kioa, which is the, the neighbouring island to which a population from Tuvalu moved, is really different. During the Second World War, some of the men from this island in Tuvalu had assisted the American military in the Pacific, and they'd received some money from doing that. So at the end of the war, they decided to pool their savings and they said, we should invest in something for our community's future, maybe a school. But there was a man called Donald Kennedy who was a New Zealander who'd, who'd been a, a teacher on their island and, and for some reason he said, instead of investing in a school, why don't you invest in an island? Why don't you buy an island in Fiji as an insurance policy for the future against land scarcity? Now, as I mentioned, the British government in the 20s and 30s had employed a policy of relocation um, or, or tried to because they thought that resource scarcity was uh, an impending problem, and indeed it is still today. 
And yet the island from which these people came was one that didn't actually have any problem with overpopulation or, or lack of resources. Nonetheless, they... Um, they bought this island, um, and I should say all these transactions were happening as kind of you know freehold title passing. It wasn't as though islands suddenly became part of a new country as a matter of international law. And so having made that purchase in 1946, the islanders then called for volunteers to go and settle there. Now, one woman I spoke to who was part of that original relocation, she was a young girl, she said no one really wanted to go, but um, the, the elders basically tapped people on the head and said, you're, you're off, and she said, because we were told to go, that's, that's what we did. Again, going through the documents, you get quite a fraught story about what happened. There was a lot of tension. Um, it certainly wasn't all plain sailing, and yet... The narrative, the sort of founding story of Kiowa, is one of pioneering spirit and community survival. So I happened to be there on their, um, I keep calling it a national day, but the equivalent of their national day where they celebrate this arrival. And it's all about unity and, and triumph against adversity. The Kiowans will say they have two homes. They have their new island in Fiji and they have their old home. Um, the local council helps to arrange annual visits for the young people so they can go back to Tuvalu, um, see relatives there, get to know their home culture. Within Fiji, they have a well-maintained and ordered community. No one expressed any discontent about um, their circumstances pertaining to the fact they were a relocated community. And this is where the Barnaban interviews I did were so different because, as I mentioned, although the Barnabans say materially we're far better off here, um, they said, you know, we don't regard ourselves as, as really being part of Fiji, as being Fijian. Um, a common refrain among people I interviewed was, when I said, you know, how do you identify, was I'm Barnaban, I'm only Fijian because of my passport and because I live in Fiji. And interestingly, they, don't, they certainly don't identify as being from Kiribati. Kiribati is really um, the... Not how it's, calling it the enemy is going too far, but Kiribati is seen as very aligned with the British government. They were the ones who benefited from the, the royalties. Um, they feel that they, they sold out. And, um, and they say, you know, the Barnabans say, we're not from Kiribati. We, we never were. We were our independent little group on our own little island and we had nothing to do with that lot at all. I think the reality is far more complex and in fact I think the requirements of international law about how you prove who is a people have um, you know, have actually shaped this story into a way that the Barnabans have, have really had to articulate a wholly separate identity which perhaps isn't um, entirely aligned with anthropologically how um, you know, once upon a time, they would have been seen as, you know, Pacific. Um, you know, there, there are a lot of, there's a lot of intermarriage, a lot of relatives, um, and and some Barnabans say to me, we were all the same people. So there's there's a fraught um, thing there as well. Um, I think that it's really clear that consultation, participation, and negotiation about moving anywhere um, not only affect the nature of movement and the type of structures that might be created in the new site but they also influence how relocation is understood over time so one Barnabin described a psyche of injustice that has been burned into our memories and a number of people told me it would be very difficult to change this mindset but said it's, it's actually hampering our community's ability to move forward now 
I don't think it's difficult to imagine how a similar story of injustice could develop if the population of small island states were relocated today without extensive prior consultation, negotiation and compensation. There's a specific idea that blood and mud are mixed together to create identity. And most Pacific Islanders resist relocation because they say it's a permanent rupture with um, home, with land and identity. They also fear that it might impact negatively on their control over land and sea resources and uh, their ability to maintain their culture and their livelihoods. If relocation is to be a serious option, and I think that, um, that you know, the, the chances of us ever seeing a whole community being relocated to another country these days, I think that's fairly remote. But even if it does happen, and certainly if it happens within countries, then the rights of those affected have to be protected and the legal status and organisational structures of the, of the relocated group have to be meticulously planned. And of course, what we had in these two contexts were people moving to empty islands. Today, that's going to be pretty unlikely. So how do you then um, balance the needs of the moving community with the host community into which they are moving? Um, none of this is going to be an easy process. I think that um, the, the final point that I would make is that when it comes to, to future relocations, um, even now, I think there still is this popular assumption that we're going to have to, to pick up and move whole communities. And in fact, in some negotiations I was in last week, notwithstanding the way I set out that most relocations are going to be internal, that's still the thing that everybody jumps to. Is, but how are we going to facilitate these cross-border movements? From, a, from the perspective of um, mobility more broadly in the context of disasters and climate change, I think there are a whole range of other interventions that need to be put in place such that pl planned relocations can be a measure of last resort. And those other things include um, better disaster risk uh, res uh, reduction measures, climate change adaptation schemes, getting states themselves to recognise their own responsibilities to people uh, within their borders, um, looking at uh, potentially temporary protection for people who are displaced in the aftermath of a disaster, of course, with an eye to more durable solutions if that's needed, but in a lot of cases, a temporary protection scheme may be sufficient. Um, in some cases, humanitarian evacuation might be needed, but again, with an eye to people returning. Um, and then finally, planned migration schemes so that you know, an ordinary voluntary migration categories can either be um, opened up to, to groups of people, admission requirements perhaps waived in certain cases, or alternatively new schemes created, such as we've seen in, um, in New Zealand, for instance, with uh, a scheme called the Pacific Access Category, which is um, a scheme that allows a certain number of Pacific Islanders to move to New Zealand as um, permanent residents each year, provided that they have a job, have a certain level of English and, and so on. Australia doesn't have a scheme quite like that, but through our development agency we pioneered a, a kind of very small um, lower level education scheme whereby 
people could come from Kiribati to train as nurses in an Australian university, and if they graduated, then um, because Australia has a shortage of nurses, they could apply to be a nurse in Australia. Uh, that's a pathway to permanent residence and ultimately citizenship. And again, that was seen... Uh, there can be some problems, of course, but on the whole it was viewed by the governments of Kiribati and Australia as a win-win solution. Um, so I think that what we need to see in all of this is a, a toolkit approach. There's no uh, you know, one answer, but all those things together, and of course bearing in mind the local um, context, um, planned relocations, I think, and certainly those across borders, um, will be very much a, a measure of last resort. But I hope that some of the, the stuff that I've unearthed about these historic relocations uh, might help to inform any future policy in this area. Thanks very much. I'm very happy to take questions. Thanks so much. Really so much in that historical account and also contemporary relevance. For more information about the different ways you can stay updated and engaged with the work of the Refugee Study Centre, please visit www.rsc.ox.ac.uk forward slash connect.